1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am the host of New Books and Finance. Uh, My guest today is Bruce G. Carruthers. He is the John D. MacArthur Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University, and he is the author of the just published The Economy of Promises, Trust, Power, and Credit in America, just out from uh, Princeton University Press. Bruce, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, as we were discussing a little bit in the green room uh, beforehand, your book fascinated me for two reasons. I have both a historical background and I work in finance, and it creates all sorts of Dissonances, which are, are wonderful, and, and your book captured two of them really, really important ones. And, and the first one that I, I really ask you to address, and it, you take it up as a sociologist, and it's addressed in the first couple chapters of the book, is that while all of us in finance and thinking about money are taught mathematical rules that kind of assume equilibrium economics, rational, economic, rational actor theory, or irrational actor theory, just a lot of math, and you can figure it all out, what you highlight is that in the history and in the reality of economic interaction, specifically uh, lending of money, of credit, that the role of trust, the the sociological role of trust as opposed to the finance role of trust, of which there really isn't any, plays an enormous part, and I I think it's an underappreciated part of the modern finance universe. And it's not taught at all by your, your neighbors to the south, you're at Northwestern, uh, you have a, a, some sort of university to the south of you that's big in finance. And for some reason or other, they miss the trust element of the equation and, and you address it. I, I, could you elaborate on how you define trust, how you see it playing a role in finance and why, why it's so important?
0: Well, I'm glad you posed the question the way you did uh, by saying, You know, in the world of finance, it's all about the uh, it's all about the math. And and so one of the things that I do in this book is I try to figure out where do the numbers come from, who generates those numbers, because it turns out that the creditworthiness of a particular debtor is now, you know, at the individual level, it is described with a number called a FICO score. And so I'm interested in where the heck did those numbers come from? Who made them up? What kind of protocol, what information processing system did the uh, people in the world of consumer credit develop and and what did they inherit and what did they make up on their own? Similarly, for other areas of finance having to do with uh, you know high corporate finance, you're looking at bond ratings. Where did the bond ratings come from? They, they're not exactly numbers, but they're very close to numbers. They are these organized uh, ordinal categories with you know the Moody's AAA on the top and all the way down to junk. Where do those numbers come from? How do they get to be so important? So in, in a sense, I am happy to hear from the people in finance who say it's all, it's all the numbers and it's all the math, because I'm kind of taking a step back and asking the question, where did those numbers come in the first place? Who made them up? Uh, what were they trying to accomplish? And, and, and you put your finger uh, right on it. It's really a matter of somebody trying to figure out who's trustworthy how do I know if I lend money to some individual that they're going to be able to repay me? So we're thinking about consequential economic decisions in a context where uh, information is scarce and where you don't really know how someone's going to behave. You may not know even who they are. So the historical backdrop for the story that I tell is a situation, and we're looking at the early 19th century, but we could go back to Europe if we wanted. But uh, you, you look at the kind of credit networks that were operational then. These were often uh, situations where the, uh, d- the lender and the borrower, they knew each other. They were members of the same community. They might be members of the same religious congregation. Uh, they knew people in common. If they weren't directly connected, they, they both knew someone uh, in, in, in common. They might be related to each other. Maybe they're cousins. And so what happened was all of this very dense social tissue created uh, an easy way, or at least an effective way, for a lender to learn about the reputation and trustworthiness of a potential debtor, Um, but that is something that doesn't scale well. And so as long as commerce and as long as uh, economic transactions were happening within these uh, compact little communities, that worked fine. And so one of the things that happened in the United States in the middle of the 19th century was uh, lenders were faced with a very different sort of problem. And it was, what happens when people who are in a city I've never heard of want to borrow money from me? I have no idea who they are. I don't know anyone who knows who they are. And yet I, I potentially could undertake with them some beneficial transaction. So you know, I want to find out who's trustworthy because I want to lend them money. I want to do deals with them. But I'm in this very information-scarce environment. And so what happened with the development of credit scoring is somebody created a business model, and this is the antecedents of, uh, of Dun & Bradstreet. Someone created a business model that said, if you're looking for information, come to us. We will We will generate it. We'll establish a network of, of, uh, of correspondents who will gather all kinds of information in mysterious ways. We will slice it. We will dice it. We will turn it into a credit report or a credit score. And if you are our client, uh, you can buy it from us. And so you don't have to worry if this person is a complete stranger. Just come to us and we will help you avoid the people that are not trustworthy and uh, identify the people who are trustworthy. And that way. You can undertake, you know, you can lend, you can do uh, um, short-term trade credit, you can do all kinds of things profitably, uh, but you're not doing it in an information vacuum because we're going to supply that. And so what happened is uh, commerce in the United States really could be scaled up. Uh, and the informational apparatus that these firms developed is astonishing. It was big data, 19th century style. You know, only it's not, you know, servers and computer networks. It's people with like thousands of ledgers and writing letters back and forth. But it did produce a a very impressively comprehensive uh, coverage of commercial America. And and it, it succeeded in the sense that by the end of the 19th century, people realized, you know, if you're going to be a sensible business person, you're going to succeed in business. Um, you should really be a subscriber because what these people provide is so useful in solving this trust problem. Who are we? Who are we going to trust?
1: And and these these books, I, I believe I'm more familiar with them, the Moody's ones uh, in the early 20th century. But I believe the the Dunn ones, Lewis Tappan, and then the Bradstreet, and then the Dunn and Bradstreet. They were both a combination of hard bound or hard copy uh, publications, plus the the ability to write in, again, not call in in the middle of the 19th century, but write in with a query about a particular counterparty and get a written answer in return. It involved thousands of local correspondents. I think for the readers, it'll be interesting to go through those chapters and imagine a world of post and people as opposed to what we're so used to, just in the last couple of decades of the internet. But this was a very labor-intensive exercise to provide a national credit network.
0: Yep, very labor-intensive, uh, and and so as these firms kind of succeeded, and as they started to feed this enormous appetite, their own businesses expanded. So they would open branch offices. So they would, you know, they're headquartered in New York. Uh, But if it turned out there was a lot of business activity in a place like Chicago, they would open the Chicago branch. And so they'd have sort of local capacity to gather information and then to keep the, the people at the headquarters well supplied with all of the latest developments about what's going on in Chicago. And they spread nationally and eventually they spread globally. So they opened up branch offices in Canada, you know, basically around the world, but all so that their subscribers would have up to date information Uh, about uh, some potential business partner that they might want to deal with and whose trustworthiness was problematic or unknown to them.
1: And then you you make the point, which I think is is worth just reiterating that, and you made it just a few minutes ago, but for me, it's really striking when you look at cross-cultural comparisons. Your book is really about the United States, but others, including Francis Fukuyama, have written about other countries where a trust system comes into place, scale soon follows and where a trust system does not come into place, whether it's a mechanical trust system like this or or just uh, uh, some other trust system where it doesn't come into place, scale does not follow. And that part of the kind of US economic miracle in the 19th and 20th centuries was the ability in a civil society type context, a non-governmental relations context to do business with other people. But not going through the government, not having to rely on, on government uh, promises, as it were, and that that really distinguished, I'm not going to say just America, but maybe northwestern Europe and the United States in terms of our uh, ability to expand the economy.
0: So we have a credit economy. And, and, you know, if we, you know, made credit too expensive, I mean, we're kind of faced you know, facing this right now. When interest rates go way up, suddenly credit becomes really expensive and it becomes less available, and the wheels don't turn so fast, and and you know things don't look so good. Um, and 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 the same was true in the 19th century. So credit lubricates transactions, credit lubricates the economy, but credit is not something you can just give away to anyone because if you do, you'll lose money. You know, it has to be given out to some people and withheld from others, or it has to be. Priced appropriately. And so you're right, it, this is a kind of an idiosyncratically American uh, invention. But part of what happens in the 20th century is, of course, America becomes the premier market economy in the world. And so some of the strange things and strange practices that we invented to solve our own unique situation, suddenly they're for global export. So, you know, you made mention, I think, of, of Moody's and the, the bond rating agencies. That was something that developed in the, United, uh, in the United States in the early 20th century, modeled very explicitly after the these earlier uh, Dunn and Bradstreet uh, rating agencies. So they, you know, John Moody didn't make it up all on his own. Um, but this is a model that has engulfed uh, debtors who and bond issuers around the world. You know, it has global significance. So it's true that my focus is on the United States, but I think some of the things that I'm tracking. Uh, have assumed global significance simply because the U.S. is the major political power and the major uh, market economy in the world, and so the things that we did have been have been exported to the rest of the world, and so everyone loves to complain about Moody's. You know, if you're a uh, if you're the South African government and Moody's uh, uh, wants to you know uh, downgrade your bonds, you are going to sweat. You know, that's not good news for South Africa even though, you know, that's a, that place is far away, doesn't matter.
1: So we have a, a global financial system for better or for worse at the present time. But another point that your book kind of reminds readers that, that this notion of kicking the Federal Reserve and blaming the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and, and what the repo rate, all of these things are, are are relatively modern contraptions. And the 19th century is fascinating because this country really didn't have any money system at all. And it came together in the early 20th century by hook or by crook. But the 19th century, a uh, zig and zag of the money system. of of national banks, which then get rescinded, their charters, and of the absence of bankruptcy laws and different practices, and individual state banks or national banks with a single branch issuing currency, it's chaos. And uh, I, I think it's worth highlighting some of the elements that we take for granted now for everyone who wants to complain about the greenback or the Fed. It, it could be a lot worse and it was a lot worse throughout the 19th century it, it's worth realizing what we have uh, by pointing out what what didn't exist at that time period
0: yeah so uh, so part of the complexity of telling the story this is part of the challenge that i faced as a kind of a historical sociologist was juggling a lot of balls there's not one simple master narrative of things getting better and you know there's no giant plan here uh, that unfolded no no telos as as they call it uh, it's it's a story where there's a lot of a lot of accidents, uh, a lot of uh, path dependency, uh, a lot of uh, you know things kind of were lumped together that maybe didn't fit all that great, um, and a lot of it I think has kind of persisted because it's at the level of infrastructure. You know, it's like the plumbing of the credit system. And, and plumbing is really easy to ignore until you spring a leak. And that's one of the hallmarks of, of infrastructure is it's kind of invisible. It's really important. It kind of delivers things that, that we all take for granted. But mostly it's below the radar screen. Mostly we're not thinking about it until it goes wrong. And then suddenly we go, oh, my gosh, now we sprung a leak. Uh, what's wrong with our, with, our, with our pipes? I think this is a kind of a credit infrastructure it's you know wasn't built all at once wasn't built according to a master plan there are parts of it that in retrospect if you were you know to design it now you wouldn't do things this way but if it works well enough people are going to you know leave it alone and let it let it uh, do its thing and in the 19th century we did deal with a the united states had a fine banking system that was crazy it was unstable there was no central player like the, the Federal Reserve to you know, bail us out in a financial crisis. Uh, what a hot mess it was! Um, and th- these different parts of the credit system were kind of domesticated and corralled and taken control over. And so gradually we turned it into a beast that we could tame uh, somewhat. But you're absolutely right, and it's you know it really was the Wild West uh, in the 19th century when it came to uh, banking.
1: So just a couple of highlights that you know might shock some of the listeners. Again, there are different banknotes, literally notes from different banks. In parts of the country, there was insufficient currency. There just wasn't money. Uh, much of the economy dealt with barter. And uh, the notion of discounting merchant's bills and discounting banknotes, let's say you take your, your dollar bill to a bank outside of your state or outside of your community, and the local bank there will give you, you know, 85 cents on the dollar, and that would be perfectly normal. So, a completely different system we do have a much more uniform system for all its flaws uh it it is uh has some virtues uh compared to the chaos and that chaos particularly the absence of cash it is argued in the late 19th century was a real impediment Impediment to uh, e- economic growth, and again, we're not used to. Or no one is used to at this point in time a linkage between gold and uh, banknotes and currency, but that was a weighed heavily on the currency of the 19th century. So, just an entirely different environment, but one that, as we are regularly challenging, or at least in the Twitter sphere, regularly challenging everything that central financial authorities do. It's it's worth Again, asking the question that I, as a historian, regularly ask is where, where where did these things come from? What were the circumstances of their creation? And a lot of these uh, institutions that we like to kick right now met a pressing need that uh, uh, to, to fill the void of, of of the 19th century. Let's go a couple over a couple of those other institutions that again people take for for granted, but it turns out they all have histories. Mortgages, credit cards, there are you know just so many examples. Personal loans sovereign loans, uh, municipal bonds. Uh, again, do, you, do we all need to go through life knowing the exact history of municipal bonds? Probably not, but it is useful for participants in the system to realize that they do have a history and they met a certain uh, need at a time and do they still to credit cards and securitization and mortgages and personal loans, et cetera. How do they, you know, where do they come from and where are they going? And I think your, your book provides a really good base for people who are thinking about the financial system to ask these questions sort of, of themselves and to think about the financial structure uh, going going forward.
0: So one of the things that you you were commenting on is that, you know, we, we have set up institutions uh, to solve problems. And these are the ones that we love to hate now. Um, but if you actually look at their history, you know, there's a financial crisis in 1907 and it helped incentivize or encourage the establishment of the Federal Reserve System because the U.S. had no central body to intervene and to, uh, you know, affirm the, the collective and public interest in a stable financial system. You know, it's like if you want to, you know, take care of some nails, you need a hammer. So, so we invented a hammer, we call it the Fed, and, and what it does is it we, we use it in certain kinds of ways. It's not perfect, and it wasn't perfect when it was designed, but it definitely answered a need. A bunch of uh, regulatory oversight uh, happened in the wake of the, um, the 1930s, right? So we had a complete meltdown. Thousands, tens of thousands of banks were, were failing. And so we tried to stabilize uh, the banking system uh, through innovations like uh, deposit insurance, FDIC, right? So no more Jimmy Stewart bank runs, right, from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Thank goodness for that, right? And it really did dampen the, uh, the, the bank failure rate. And there are lots of people who complain about FDIC and think that it was maybe a bad idea. And then coming much closer to, to where we are today, uh, the global financial crisis of 2008. I gather their massive meltdown, and it led to some regulatory innovation uh, innovation and some some people looking hard at the rating agencies and are they doing a good job and so forth. But part of the reason that we've accumulated in this particular way uh, these institutions that we love to complain about is they're there for a reason and the reason may lie in the past. But the counterfactual of you know what would happen in the complete absence of of a uniform you know sovereign backed currency or what have you. It's it's ugly, and um, and and we have had historical experiences of that ugliness. And so, for as much as we love to hate them, uh, the alternative uh, is is often not very not very good.
1: So let let's kind of take it to the to the present day, having reviewed two centuries of these credit institutions and the definitions of trust, originally for you know merchants and farm economy, and now for more complicated matters and you you observe the US economic system in 2022 what <laughs> you're in charge now oh uh, what boy. what uh, what what do you say boy this makes a lot of sense we should really press hard here uh, regardless of what the historical context was for the, the it and mm-hmm. what boy this makes no sense at all It was founded it fixed a problem in 1915 or 1830 But it it really doesn't make any sense now did as you were doing the research and writing mm-hmm. Did a, a certain degree of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense come clear to you?
0: Uh, well, first of all since you've made put me in charge of everything my first thing is I instantly resign so from that office of being in charge of everything uh, but assuming that I, I cannot resign and I'm really forced to make some choices, I would say that uh, one of the things that I, I think is very, uh, a, a, a very important issue, uh, and this kind of builds a little bit on, on my characterization of these rating agencies as big data 19th century style, is, you know, that's a very modern phrase. And yeah, it's true they were doing big data 19th century style, but now we're really doing big data. We're doing it 21st century style. And I think some of the challenges that people uh, ran into in the 19th century are on are facing us now on steroids. Uh, namely, you know uh, the 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 fintech firms, uh, the people on the frontiers of of consumer credit, they are now taking advantage, and they're interested in exploiting the fact that so much of our daily Social and economic lives generate spontaneously massive data streams, and they're interested in harvesting those and seeing what they can do with it. You know, can they enhance credit scores? Can they do a better job predicting people's trustworthiness by looking at their Facebook postings or or what they're watching online? Or you know, all the sort of you know what what TikTok things do we watch? Is there any traction to be gotten there? Um, and and this is not a trivial question. This is, you know, there's a bunch of programmers and people working for these firms that are busy trying to make this happen right now. Uh, so that is the, the specter of big data, you know, and some of the issues that uh, were posed and, and kind of resolved, not in a very satisfactory way, uh, cropped up in the 19th century. But I think there's a 21st century version that we really want to think hard about, which is to say. When these data are, are generated, who owns them? Who owns the data? Does the user, you know, it's all lots of user generated content. Does the user own the data or does the tech firm or whoever can grab a, a hold of the, of the data stream? Do they own it? Does Meta own all this data? Do the social media companies own this data? Issues of data ownership uh, matter a lot. Uh, issues of veracity matter a lot. So one of the things that was a, a legal challenge for the 19th century uh, credit raters was what happens if you get it wrong? What if you? If, what what happens when you give someone a high rating and then default? Or what happens when you give someone a low rating and they fail and then they say, "Gee, I was doing great until I got the low rating, and then no one would give me credit, and now I'm screwed," and so I'm going to sue. So all this litigation cropped up, and the um, the res- resolution. Was basically to say, ratings are like opinions. You can't be right and you can't be wrong. And so they kind of took the rating agencies and and let them off the hook in that regard. Um, But now we're coming back into a situation where we know there's lots of information circulating, uh, lots of big data are flowing around, uh, lots of people paying attention to social media. And do we want to reconsider uh, and, and maybe impose some kind of standard of veracity, like you're going to say something about someone, it has to be more or less right, or, or is it all just going to be more opinions? So I think uh, some of the legal issues that got posed in the 19th century are definitely uh, turning up again in our, our new world of surveillance capitalism or big data or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so in that sense, I think um, you know the resolutions that, that, that we could live with uh, in the 19th century Maybe that's just not going to work uh, so well anymore. Um, I think uh, another issue is how proprietary this, this, this was. You mentioned that this is all kind of private sector stuff uh, and, you know, exactly how credit information is being processed and, and how it's being used. Uh, a lot of this is the, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the business model of the rating agencies. It's a kind of a trade secret. It's something they, they keep to themselves. It could be that some measure of oversight uh, would be a good idea to make sure, uh, if these are all just algorithmic black boxes that are making fateful decisions, maybe we need some oversight to kind of see, now what exactly are you doing and how are you calculating these scores and is the information that you're using, is it discriminatory? We don't like to have an economy that inadvertently discriminates against certain protected groups, like we don't want to discriminate against women or we don't want to discriminate against uh, racial minorities and, and is that's happening with these these big anonymous algorithms? Again, there's a kind of a, a, a public policy uh, question to be posed. And if everything's tied up and locked down and black boxed because it's all proprietary, that's a really tough thing to do. Uh, so again, I, I think the status of all this information is 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 it's, it's so consequential, uh, we probably want to revisit some decisions we've made in the past in a world that was simpler and uh, and maybe a little bit more innocent.
1: I think the Europeans are wrestling with that right now about data privacy. And uh, there's a greater role for the government in, in Europe about these matters. And they're trying to figure out these issues. In my particular bailiwick of investing, there's a whole new area called ESG investing, which involves a great deal of data, which is in the very early stages which is my very diplomatic way of saying some of it's made up and whether you can trust that data uh and characterizations of certain investments as being green or not green is in again the very early stages where the 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 level of trust one has or market participants have in that in an early stage paradigm, it would be the first office of, of done Lewis Tappan. Is that, it was his name, et cetera, who mm-hmm. opens it? You know, the first iteration of that, yeah, it's a great idea, but do I know you enough to trust you Lewis Tappan who runs this, this credit uh, agency. So this is new forms of data analysis and new forms of trust are being tested as we speak. I want to ask you that question. The definition back to you as a sociologist, the trust, implied in a promise. And you you have some interesting work in the uh, beginning chapters about the very nature of a promise, sort of the philosophical issues uh, uh, associated with a promise. And then we have this at an earlier point in time. Has the nature of trust changed in the modern society, or is it still almost biblical in that it's a very almost unquantifiable even though we spend all of our time trying to quantify it, unquantifiable faith in someone to do what you expect them to do? Or has that, has that changed over time? Or is that really the last 5,000 years fairly stable?
0: I think that uh, certainly the fact of, of quantification and numbers floating around and being attached to everywhere and the fact that we have all this computational ability to process all these numbers, I mean, that's real. That, that's, that's, that, that has made a difference. I think that when it comes to issues of trust, though, the numbers, sometimes they seem uh, determinative, but oftentimes they don't. And so then there's a, a human element that you really want to go to, and suddenly you're very old school. So if you are going to, you know, wonder, you know, make a bank loan to some big firm you know you want to look at the numbers and you want to make sure that you can trust the numbers so it's not like the the trust issue disappeared it's just now you you want to know I, i'll answer the question of whether i can trust the, the borrower by looking at the numbers and then i got another question which is do i trust the numbers and then that's another question is do i trust the accountants who generated the, the numbers and then do i trust the the uh, the top uh, executive team in this firm so you know you can, large things you can feed off a lot of numbers but at some point there's probably going to be a place where you will be very old school and you want to know do i trust these people are they the kind of folks who keep their promises do i know them do i have a social connection with them you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, there are a lot of small worlds out there which is to say uh, there are a lot of places where you know if you work a little bit you may not know these people, but you might know someone who knows them, and we've all got like really elaborate networks, and there's six degrees of separation and all that kind of stuff. So pretty, if if, if you know, you, pretty soon you can you can turn it into a question, or at least part of it into a question of you know, in a timeless way, is this someone I can trust? Which is, which is to say, if they promise to do something, are they going to do it? do I believe their promise? Are they the kind of person who, who keeps their promises? So it's not as if the quantification has completely substituted for and blown out the old-fashioned stuff. I think the old-fashioned stuff coexists. Uh, there's a lot of quantification, a lot of math, a lot of numbers. That's how the world of credit operates. and And we all like that. But then there are moments where you realize that's not enough and it's not going to resolve things and, uh, and now we have to kind of wonder, okay, who are we dealing with here? And then you, it, it really is very old-fashioned, and it is a sort of a situation that would be recognizable to someone in the 18th century.
1: And I, I and someone from a, f- a philosophy or a religious background. Yeah. And I wish the statement that you just made was really part of the CFA curriculum, uh, the investment uh, uh, certificate, because it really needs to be. We the pendulum in my industry is is as I uh, led with at the beginning of the conversation has swung too far in the direction of assuming that trust is irrelevant that and everything is is simply a matter of numbers. I just I just don't believe that. I wanted to bring the conversation up to the to the real up to date we mentioned fiat currency, we mentioned central governments, trust or lack of governments. And we mentioned the generally negative orientation towards central banking authorities uh, in in the world now. And a community of people has come together in the last decade or two to, to challenge that. And I find it fascinating. And they tried to create a currency and uh, mechanisms of exchange that don't involve central central authorities because they don't trust the central authorities. And I said, that's really interesting. Decentralized ledgers have existed for centuries, but now you are turbocharging them with the internet. That's great. That's gonna make a decentralized ledger work really well. But I don't think I get your assumption that there isn't trust involved in this. Mm -hmm. And the early history of cryptocurrency shows that instead of trusting the government, you're just trusting the people behind anonymous people behind a bunch of uh, computer networks and they can turn out to be just as trustworthy or not as the central government authorities that are easier to distrust. So it, to me, it's not shifting from a system of trust to one in which trust is not involved, but it's a system of trust from one set of folks to a different set of folks. As you were writing this book and as you've come to market and started discussing it, has the crypto issue come up and, and have you, is that the next, uh, next project you're working on? Because again, it, the, the, at the nature of crypto is decentralized ledgers, which is fine, blockchain, computer power, and trust, but I don't think most people in the crypto world would agree with my assessment of it.
0: Right. So I think this is a fascinating development and I'll, I'll tell you why I was working on this book. I was keeping my eye on crypto because it is such an interesting kind of social experiment. And I kept, you know, following the gyrations and the volatility of crypto. So it would spike and it would turn into a big thing and then it would practically disappear and then i would say to myself maybe i don't need to figure out all this distributed ledger stuff because it's just going to go away it's going to be like an ephemeral it'll be a mirage that happened you know in the in the 2000s and then disappeared without a trace mm-hmm. but it does seem to be keep keep on coming back and so that's why it's it's good to think about and i believe and i think this is consistent with what you're saying uh, there are aspects of crypto that actually make sense and are, will serve a useful purpose, and that is the distributed ledger technology. So that's a good thing. That's useful uh, because we're used to operating our economy around these centralized ledgers. And who's keeping the ledger? And what if it you know, gets hacked or what if it's uh, you know, uh, damaged in some kind of way? We lose everything, right? So decentralized, fabulous. What a good trick that is. Um, so that part I see you know, very helpful going forward. But all of the you know uh, sort of anarchist fantasies about we don't need you know money or we don't need fiat currency because we got this new new thing going, I think those fantasies are not being realized. Uh, partly because it turns out there is a human element, and it turns out that sometimes those people are not very trustworthy, and they'll fleece you, and they'll hack you, and they'll run off with all your your bitcoins, and then then you're screwed, right? So there is uh, there there is that element. There's also the fact that if you track it it's the most unstable currency ever I mean who wants a medium of exchange that is sort of surging and collapsing uh, at that rate I mean it, it's an interesting cyber asset you know it's a speculative asset but I wouldn't want to use it as a medium of exchange precisely because it's so it's so volatile and uh, it doesn't it's not useful that way. So that part of it I kind of see as you know this is not working out. Other parts, and I know I'm not the only one, and it's not just you, it's, you know, lots of big institutions are interested in that distributed led- ledger technology. So some part of this is is definitely going to go forward, but you don't escape the problem of trust. You may not like the, you know, there's the people that you're familiar with and the institutions that you're familiar with, and and they're easy to distrust, you know, because that's a kind of a, a nice political message of, you know, I don't trust anyone or you can't trust anyone. You know it's, That's a pretty common thing. Uh, but what we've learned in the experience of cryptocurrency is it turns out there's a lot of other people you, you can't trust either. It's just we didn't know who they were, but we found them or they found us and they found our money in the cryptocurrency uh, world.
1: I think in, in the uh, second and third edition of, of the Economy of Promises, there'll, there'll be some uh, follow-up chapters uh, in regard to how trust and measuring systems is played out plays out in the, in the digital economy. Bruce, what are you working on now? I know this was a big book, uh, but is there a follow-up? Is there a natural project that follows from it and the, the you know, consequences of, uh, of addressing the issue of, of trust and promises in a, in a digital economy?
0: Well, uh, you know, I work for a research university, so I my official answer is, of course, I've got lots of research projects going on, uh, and, and I'm hoping the president of Northwestern heard that loud and clear, so I'm continuing to work hard. Uh, but seriously, one of them is actually uh, on a topic that you mentioned earlier, which is the um, the development of ESG. I find that very interesting. Uh, some people call it uh, CSR, Corporate, Corporate Social Responsibility, ESG. But the fact that there's a growing ecosystem of ratings and scorings and evaluations and what is it that they're rating, uh, what is it actually measuring, why these things matter, that is something I find fascinating precisely because I think I just tracked that in the world of credit over two centuries, and now it's unfolding very in a very fast way. Uh, and and it's about a very different kind of of puzzle. You know, it's not about who's creditworthy now. It's about who's sustainable or who treats their you know who's corpor- who's a responsible corporation. So I think that's a fascinating area, and I've got a project with one of my colleagues uh, in the business school on that. So so I'm with you on that. Um, yeah,
1: and you know, I encourage I encourage you on that product because some clarity is needed. Again, in any early stage paradigm, there are going to be zigs and zags and conflicting definitions, a little bit like the Wild West or the mid 19th century in terms of credit determination. But in this new paradigm, there's a lot of of uh, uh, mist. Uh, zigging and zagging and miscommunication mm-hmm. and so forth and and various definitions so uh, a little bit of uh, structure or, or a historical analysis of that already we've had kind of a decade or two of this already would be be very helpful I wish you uh, wish you well on, on that project the current book however is the book that's just out is The Economy of Promises Trust, Power, and Credit in America just out from Princeton University Press Bruce Carruthers uh, thank you so much it's been an excellent uh, discussion of a really interesting book that I think anyone involved in economic transactions on any side of the credit transaction but particularly those in in finance or uh, interest in the economic system should definitely uh, definitely read Bruce thank you so much for being on the show
0: thank you for having me it's been it's been fun